What do you think uh, the most popular Bible verse in the world is? John 3.16, right? According to a project by World Vision published in October 2022, they found statistically John 3.16 as the most popular Bible verse in the world. I mean, we knew that, but they confirmed it, right? What they did was they looked uh, and compiled searches of Scripture by country and found overwhelmingly that this little verse in John is the most searched verse. Over 2 million searches a month uh, of John 3.16 uh, in the world. Then uh, they went on some of the other things they found is on uh, Instagram. The hashtag John 3.16 has over a quarter million posts. And on TikTok, 55.9 million views. Hashtag John 3.16. It is a well-known verse, Right? Uh, people know, you can, you can put JN316 and most people will know immediately what you're talking about. And this is consistent with what other studies found in their search results as well. This makes sense because uh, this has long been a verse the church has used in evangelism. And in ex- my experience is one of the first verses taught to our children, right? If you grew up in church or around Sunday school or VBS, you can probably remember learning John 316, Right? So the other day we were driving and I asked the kids from the youngest to the oldest, what is John 3.16? And, and everyone but Lincoln, I'm ashamed to admit, could say it. But it wasn't the way that I learned it, right? Because I learned it in the KJV, right? Words like begotten and believeth. I never use believeth in my life, but when I quote John 3.16, it comes out. I can't help it. It's the way I learned it. And so here, 30 years later, I still remember learning this verse. It is one that, that we often share, Right? It has been called the golden text of the Bible. It's been called the gospel in a nutshell. 16th century German Protestant theologian Martin Luther said this verse is the gospel in miniature. The problem is that it alone does not address the vital elements of the gospel, right? Mainly repentance and obedience. It's not the gospel in a nutshell unless we use it as a jumping off point to get to the gospel, right? It's a great verse. It's easy to remember. We know it. The problem compounds when we fail to define terms like what is God's love that he loved the world with? What is belief in Jesus? When we leave these open for people to ascribe their own meaning, then tradition and culture and personal opinions can take this beautifully encouraging verse and make it something that it was never intended to be. Amen? This is where we get what we call easy believism, right? Bible says God loves you. If you say this prayer, you're saved. Nothing has to change, right? You said it was true. You believe John 3.16, right? But listen, we're unaware of the context. We've divorced John 3.16 from the context. It wasn't this proverbial maxim that Jesus gave apart from anything else. It wasn't uh, a teaching where it just records. It is in a conversation that Jesus is having with a man about everlasting life and new birth, Right? It's the context of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, right? To rightly understand John 3.16, we need to rightly understand why Scripture gives us a statement in the context of being born again. We need to also rightly understand the way Jesus references Old Testament Scriptures, not just once, but twice in this short conversation. And when all of these things fall in place, John 3.16 is opened up before us, and it is then that we see the beauty of it and can rightly share it. What is at stake this morning is a right understanding of the gospel, apart from which no man can be saved. 
When I began, I want you to know I look at the scripture for the sermon weeks ahead of time, and I remember thinking, John 3.16, man, that'll be easy, right? And then I began to wrestle with it, and I began to think about what do people think this means, right? What if we as a church portrayed John 3.16 to really be about, and I began to, my heart began to, to kind of break, and I began to read it in this context, and I began to think, this may be the most difficult sermon I've ever preached on the easiest text that you could preach on, right? And so I began to wrestle with this because, listen, we have to understand the gospel. And if there was ever a place where people needed to be sure they understood the gospel, it is a place where people have gathered in the name of Jesus. Amen? We have to know what the gospel is. What does John through 16 teach us in its context? And so with that in mind, this morning is going to be a little different in the sense we're not just going to focus in on one or two verses, but we are going to walk through this encounter with Nicodemus, taking a few verses at a time, leading up to John 3.16. To further confuse the Baptists, we don't have three points this morning. Rather, we have two divisions of two. So I'm going to let you decide if we have two or four points, okay? It's up to you this morning on your note-taking. But what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about being born again from above. John 3.16, right in the context of John 3.1 through 18. Born again from above. And so if you have your Bibles open in John 3, where we're going to begin this morning, John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. We're going to read the first few verses to kind of set the scene of what is happening in John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's stop there for a minute. So here's the situation. Uh, Jesus has gone into Jerusalem uh, early in his ministry. Uh, He cleans the temple for the first time. He braids a whip. He drives out the money changers. He begins to teach and perform miracles. And then as he's staying in Jerusalem for for that Passover, one night Nicodemus uh, comes. And it's interesting the way that it introduces Nicodemus, right? It doesn't say there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Why that context? I want you to look back in your Bibles just a few verses to John 2.23. You really just have to scan back up. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Essentially, John says here that many believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Same word, entrust and believe. As he performed miracles, many people believed in him, but he did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew their faith was not rightly placed. He knew they couldn't rightly understand because he hadn't revealed who he was yet, right? They were excited about the miracles and things like that. They were seeking after the miracles, but not the person. And so he says, they don't fully understand. It's incomplete. But it's interesting to me that this is the immediate context of John 3.16. He knew what was in man. A man named Nicodemus, right? Here Nicodemus comes and and John tells us that this is a man 
who Jesus did not entrust himself to, but he believed some things about Jesus. We see that in the beginning. He comes and, and he begins this kind of praise of Jesus. We know that you are from God. And immediately I wrote this note that Jesus does some conversational judo, right? He doesn't answer his question. He like avoids that altogether. He kind of interrupts him and says, hey, listen, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Like you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is thrown off his feet. Like he came to talk to Jesus about him being a great teacher and maybe even to give him some advice as the teacher of Israel, right? To kind of bring Jesus under the wing of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And Jesus immediately cuts him off. And he cuts to the core issue, the one that Nicodemus is obviously wrestling with. We're told a few details that help us understand who Nicodemus is. It says he's one of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the law, uh, an upstanding moral man, all around respected and revered. He is the one people bring questions to. And in one short sentence, Jesus turns all that around. And the only thing Nicodemus does from now on is ask questions, right? I mean, this is the, the man, the learned man of Israel. And with one statement, Jesus puts him on his heels and he only can then say how for the rest of the conversation. One final note before we get into the message this morning. Have you ever wondered why Jesus uses this language of being born again with Nicodemus? He didn't use it with everyone he met, right? This morning, if you were in Bible study, you learned that when he encountered the woman at the well, he used the terminology of living water. When he encountered the rich young ruler, he said, go and sell what you have and you'll have treasure in heaven, right? So why this analogy of being born again with Nicodemus? Here's why. I think Nicodemus was a Jew and not just a Jew, but he was a Jew among Jews, as Paul would say later, right? He was elite. His theology said that he was acceptable to God because of his lineage, because he was part of the Jewish race and that he had Abraham as his ancestor, his father. He has been born into the covenant in favor of God, or so he thought. And so Jesus, cutting to the very core of his identity, tells him, if you really want to experience the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Your earthly birth didn't matter. If you really want to encounter the kingdom, something else needs to happen. And so he cuts all of what Nicodemus is trusting in to know and, and experience God off and says, you need something beyond that. So here's his question, and we're going to use this kind of as a transition. How, Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Nicodemus says, how can this be, right? And so that's his, his first question. And it's to that first question we get our first division this morning. We're going to look at the nature and necessity of the new birth. The nature and necessity of the new birth. And this is going to be at verses 5 and through 8. It's unlikely that Nicodemus asked this question in sincerity, at least in the way that it sounds. Like he knew that a man couldn't be physically born again. He knew no one could be born again this way. But he also didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, one must be born again or born from above, as it can be translated. What he is asking seems to be, how can this second birth be accomplished, right? What, is, what, what do you mean? This was not a figurative language that Jesus, that Nicodemus recognized, right? So what do you mean? How could this be? How can someone be born again a second time, born from above, started over? And Jesus answers him in John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born who is born of the Spirit. Jesus again says, truly, truly, I say to you, which emphasizes the importance of what he's about to say. We're going to look at that under two headings, the, the nature and the necessity. First, the nature of the new birth is spiritual. If you don't take any more notes, just write nature, spiritual. Because we have to understand that what Jesus is talking about is spiritual in nature. There's a lot of theology we could dig into here. But for our purposes this morning, I want to share just a simple definition from a pastor, Alistair Begg, in reference to the nature of the new birth. He says, rather than getting bogged down in theological technicalities here, here is a simple definition of the new birth. The new birth is simply a spiritual transformation that has a heavenly origin and a divine initiative. Let me say that one more time. The new birth is simply a spiritual transformation that has a heavenly origin and a divine initiative. This is, in essence, the birth from above, or the birth, the new birth, born again, right? That's why our title sermon is born again from above, because the word again could reference either, either again to start over or from above, and I think Jesus uses both here, right? So he's talking about something that has to happen in the spiritual realm. This is the original question, the statement that prompted the question, right? Unless one is born again. I think Jesus often uses terminology that has these dual meanings, and I think he does it here. Uh, it's not the first time or the last time that Jesus does this. this is a, there's a surface level understanding that Nicodemus grabs onto by saying that one must be born again. But there's also this idea that we must be born from above. The second birth is uh, initiated by God. When Nicodemus presses Jesus a little bit on how this can be, his language changes a little bit, doesn't it? Nicodemus presses Jesus on how it can be, and he says, uh, before his question, Jesus said this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? After his question, he says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's an obvious parallelism parallelism here in Jesus' words. Born again is explained as being born of water and the Spirit. Now this is, admittedly, uh, a statement that is open for a lot of different interpretations. And I want to give you just a few of the historic interpretations of this statement, born of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit could refer to baptism, which is easy enough for us to see. Um, because if we take into account what Scripture says about being baptized with water and being baptized with the Spirit, uh, we can see this, but I think this is unlikely for two reasons. The first is Jesus had not yet given baptism in the way that we understand it. Nicodemus wouldn't have known what he was talking about. This would be, I think, stretching his words a little bit. It couldn't refer to John's baptism, because we're, again, not told that is part of the new birth. We are never told that baptism is a part of the new birth, although it will surely follow it, right? So we need to be careful about assuming that this is what Jesus is talking about. The second interpretation, some commentators point to the following statement, that that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit, and say that it could then refer to natural birth and spiritual birth. This is like when we say a woman's water breaks in labor. Again, we could see why that could be the case, but I think, again, it's unlikely 
that Jesus would use terminology that would probably not mean anything in Nicodemus. That is an English idiom saying for what happens. There are certain easier ways Jesus could have referenced physical birth. Third, and in my opinion, most likely to be what Jesus is referring to is that the water and the spirit refer to the same event. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus, you'll see, rebukes Nicodemus for being a great teacher of Israel and not understanding what he's talking about, right? So that would tell us that Jesus thinks or at least assumes that Nicodemus should know what he's talking about by his studies of the Old Testament, right? Nicodemus, you of all people who know the scriptures should know what I'm talking about. And I want to read you specifically one important reference this morning, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the language of the new covenant, isn't it? The promise that God would give his people a new heart. And the bookends of that promise is that God would wash them and give them his spirit, right? And so I think what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, there is something that needs to happen to you, and it is the supernatural work of God described here as being born again. And I think the evidence for this is overwhelming, but also if you look at verse 8, Jesus now summarizes being born again, and he says, so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit, right? So follow his logic, born again, born of water and the Spirit, born of the Spirit, right? If you just follow what Jesus says, you, you see that Jesus summarizes all of this with being born of the Spirit. I believe this teaches us that the new birth is spiritual in nature, right? To which Jesus adds two explanations. He says that which is born of flesh is flesh. That is, the flesh cannot produce the things necessary for spiritual birth. Two, the work of the new birth is seen in its effects, not its event. Jesus says it is like the wind. You cannot see it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. But you see its effect, and you understand that it is caused by the wind. So he says is the new birth. It is not like your physical birth. You cannot see it. Like you see a newborn baby, but you can see the effects of it. When you are born again, we understand that it is first spiritual in nature. It is something the Spirit does in our spirit. The second thing Jesus says is necessary for experiencing the kingdom of God. Twice he says, unless, unless one is born again, unless you are born again. And what unless does is it introduces a conditional requirement. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God without this supernatural work of the Spirit. Listen, that means there's nothing you can do in your flesh to enter the kingdom of God. There is nothing Nicodemus could do in all of his religion to enter or even, Jesus says, see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would not find the answer to the question that was rolling around in his heart. How can I experience the kingdom of God? He would not find it in his religious obedience. He would not find it in his nationality. He would not find it in anything that he could do or produce. Listen, do you hear me this morning? It is the same for you. You will not experience eternal life because of something you do. 
You cannot be born a Christian. Listen to me. I was just reading a transcript from a, a pastor. I use the quotes. If you're, if you're listening to this, know that I'm air quoting. A pastor, when asked, have you always been a Christian? He said, yes, I was born a Christian. His wife said, I was born a Christian. Raised in a Christian home. No, you're not. Jesus says, you cannot be born a Christian. You have to be born again to be a follower of Christ. According to Jesus, this is impossible because flesh produces flesh. Right? Spirit produces spirit. No one is born able to see or enter the kingdom of God apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. You may have been in church since you were the nursery. Listen, that doesn't make you born again. You might have attended every VBS, special event, and service available since you were little, and that does not make you born again. Your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents could have been Christian, and you have been raised in a Christian home, but listen, that does not make you born again. You could have done a lot of religious things. You might have said a prayer. You might have been baptized. You might have tithed, gone on mission trips, taught the Bible, but know this morning, none of that makes you born again. You cannot... Be born spirit from flesh. Jesus could not be clearer that that which is in flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. Listen, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be supernaturally born again by the work of the spirit. Now, hopefully, now you're asking the same question that Nicodemus asked, right? How? Tell me. He says in verse, uh, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can someone experience this new birth? Jesus answers in his next statement. We're going to talk about the manner and method of the new birth. We've talked about the need and the necessity of it. John 3, verse 10. In reference to this question, Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you, have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand human things like birth and wind, how will you understand heavenly things? Jesus is not pulling any punches here, right, with Nicodemus. With all of Nicodemus' study and knowledge, he should have been able to see the need and the necessity of the supernatural work. He should have been able to read Ezekiel and say, I need a new heart, right? One interesting note here is that you, Jesus uses as plural. This is not just for Nicodemus. This is for everyone Nicodemus represents. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know you are a teacher from God. What is he saying? I represent a group of Pharisees and religious people who believe that you are from God because of the miracles you work. Jesus tells them, basically, essentially, Nicodemus, go back and tell them, unless they're born again, they can't see or enter the kingdom of God. This is for everyone. After rebuking Nicodemus for his lack of understanding and his refusal to accept the testimony of Jesus, he tells Nicodemus the answer to his question, how can these things be? 
Jesus references an Old Testament event in the time of Moses. Uh, if you want to, if you write in your Bible, write Numbers 21, because this is where the story comes from. And I encourage you at some point to look back over that in the history of the Israelites so you can see the context. But here's a summary. The people are, uh, have been led uh, by God and they're following him, but they begin to be hungry and thirsty and they begin to grumble. And the Bible says they begin to speak against God and Moses and ask, God, why did you even bring us out here if it was just to die? And so they're, they're blaspheming God's name. They're rebelling against who he is. And the Bible says that God sends fiery serpents in their midst. And when they, someone is bit, it is a death sentence. It is, it is a poisonous snake, Right? And in that moment, the people go to Moses and they repent. We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and his, he, uh, you, his anointed. Pray that he would take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the picture Jesus uses. Out of all the pictures in the Old Testament, he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. How is this new birth possible? What is the manner in which it will be? So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here again, Jesus uses language that has dual meanings. Lifted up means exalted. But it's also a clear reference to the crucifixion where Jesus would be physically nailed to a cross and lifted up into the sky. So Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let's examine this illustration that Jesus uses just for a moment. The Israelites sinned against God. And therefore, in God's justice, he sent fiery serpents on them. And when they were bitten, they were as good as dead. They received from God. Just punishment for the rebellion against a holy and righteous God. When they repented and turned back to God, he commanded Moses to provide a way for them to be healed, to live. They had to look on the image of the very thing that was causing their death. It was a symbol of their sin, a symbol of their punishment, a symbol of their rebellion, right? What do we see on the cross? Jesus dying because of our sin our rebellion, Jesus experiencing the just wrath of God in our place, the very cause of our death embodied in an undeserving, innocent Savior. And if we would be saved, if we would escape spiritual death, we must look to him in the same way they looked to the bronze serpent. Let's talk about that for a minute. If you were bit and dying from this bite, don't you need medicine? Don't you need somebody to physically intervene, right, to do something? So you cry out to God through Moses, hoping for a remedy, and he comes back with a bronze serpent on a pole and says, if you're bit, look to this and you'll live. It's ludicrous. Doesn't make any sense. I'm dying, Moses. I need medicine. But God's plan is look to the serpent, and you will live. It is a great example of what faith is. Trust that if God said this is the remedy, then it's the remedy. If God says look, then I will look. If God says this is the way, it is the way. So listen, if you will, 
how do you look to the lifted up Christ in this way? What does Jesus mean when he says, look to, to the Son of Man who has been lifted up? Jesus answers that question when he says, whoever believes in him may have everlasting or eternal life. That KJV came out. Did you hear that? They may experience this new and necessary spiritual birth, and it's to the method we turn now. Jesus says, unless the Son of Man or the Son of Man is lifted up, and then he says, believe in him. The word translated believe here, let's talk about the method of the new birth. The word translated believe here is sometimes translated as faith, and it's an important word in the Gospel of John. He uses it some 98 times in the Gospel of John, believe, faith. It is, it is pivotal to John's whole presentation of who Jesus is. It is bookends. In the very first chapter of John, he says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 20, towards the end of his chapter, he says, All of these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's message. Believe in Jesus. So what does it mean to believe in him? Look up here for a second. This is where we have failed as a church. This is where we have failed as evangelists, as teachers of children. This is where we have failed the message because we have taken what Jesus says here and turned it into something far less than it is. We have boiled it down to the new birth in four easy steps, right? Someone comes down and they're experiencing uh, conviction or they say, how do I be saved? And you say, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died for you? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? Yes. Do you want to be saved? Yes. Pray this prayer. Did you mean it? Yes. You're saved. That's not what Jesus says here when he says believe on the son of God. It's not the same thing. And I want to show you why it's so important do you really think that's what Jesus meant when he said, look to the Son? Believe a couple things with your mind and say a prayer. That if we simply agree with certain statements about him, it is the same as believing in him. No, the word is so much more than that. Once and for all, I want to get clear on what it means to believe in the Bible. It has been said there are three components of belief. The first is knowledge. You have to know what to believe in, right? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if someone doesn't preach? And how can they preach if someone hasn't been sent, right? Someone has to tell you about who Jesus is, why he came, and why you need to be saved or born again. Someone has to tell you. The second step is assent. You have to agree with what you've been told. I understand that Jesus is the Son of God. I understand that he was born a virgin. I understand he lived a sinless life. I understand that he died on the cross for sin. I understand that he rose again victorious over sin, death, and hell. I understand he is the way, the truth, and the life. Apart from him, I cannot be saved. And if I call out to him, I can be saved. I understand all that. And that is where many people stop, right? We say, you believe all that? Yeah, okay. Do you want to pray? Of course. Okay, repeat after me. But listen, that belief doesn't stop there. Not what Jesus is talking about, not faith, not this word. Belief has to be moved into a third component, which is trust. Not merely assenting to the truth, but grabbing a hold of it and clinging to it is your only hope, deciding there is nothing more important or necessary than trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Why did Abraham have faith, believe God? Because he moved. Amen? He trusted God, and that's what believe means. Listen, there's an illustration. 
that I heard long ago that I hope helps everyone here. Imagine you are on a plane. And the pilot comes out of the cockpit and he says, listen, the plane's going down. There's nothing to be done. Your only hope is to put on this parachute and jump with me. It's the only way to survive. Now, you've heard of parachutes. You know what they are and what they're for, and you have some idea how they work. That's not belief. That's knowledge, right? You know what a parachute is. Now, ascent, mental ascent would be You put on the parachute and you sit back in your seat. You've assented or agreed that this parachute can save you. That is not belief. The captain says it's time to jump. It is only when you have grasped that parachute and jumped out of the plane that you have believed in that parachute. Does that make sense? Some of you have heard about Jesus. You're familiar with him. You know the Christian faith. You, you can articulate it. But you're no better than the guy that's sitting on the plane about to die saying, I know what a parachute is. Some of you have even mentally agreed with what you've heard, but you're holding out. You tell yourself one day when it gets bad enough, one day when I'm ready, one day I'll trust, I'll jump, one day. Some of you have even gone through the motions of putting the parachute on. You said the prayer. You got baptized, right? Better safe than sorry. But if for all intents and purposes, you're no different than the man in our story that puts on the parachute and sits back down to watch his movie or eat his meal, right? You haven't done anything. Putting on the parachute hasn't made an ounce of difference in your life. It is not until you abandon everything else. Turn from trusting in anything else, your inherent goodness, your good works, your religion, and put your trust in Jesus that you have truly believed in him. And if you haven't done that, the Bible says you have not been born again. And if you have not been born again, you are dead in your trespasses. To go back to our Old Testament story, you are bitten. The poison of sin is coursing through your veins, and you are going to die. And someone told you that God has provided a way for you to live. Lying in your tent, acknowledging that God has provided a way will not save you. Knowing that if you climb out and look at the serpent and you will be saved will not save you. Saying that you believe that if you did you would be saved will not save you. It is not until faith and obedience meet and you crawl out of your tent and look at the bronze serpent that you can be saved. Are you hearing me? I want us to know as a church that the gospel is not just about what we say we believe. The gospel is not about checking off a list of things that we agree with. The gospel is about believing the promises of God so much so that they are all of your hope and trust. And now, now we are ready for the most famous verse in the world. Amen? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A couple of notes before we move on. I, the English misplaces the word so. It doesn't mean, as the Amplified Bible says, that God so loved, greatly loved. It refers us back to John 15. 
Rather, in the same way that God gave the Israelites a way to be saved through faith because God loved the world, he gave his only son. How did he give his only son? On the cross as a substitutionary atonement for your sins so that whoever believes in him, whoever would look to him in faith, repenting and turning from everything else they could trust in and wholly trusting him for salvation, they will not perish from their sin, but rather they will enter the kingdom of God and experience the new birth and eternal life. That is the gospel. That's what it means and the method of the new birth promises for those who believe. This is the full message of the gospel. So where do we go from here? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at our last two verses of our text this morning, John 17, 317 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you've never believed in Jesus the way we looked at this morning, the Bible says that you are condemned already. You have been bitten, you are dead, and there is no hope in your flesh in you. You cannot do anything, you cannot produce anything, you cannot earn anything by your own efforts that will ever save you. But if, but if you will put your faith and trust that despite your rebellion, despite your sin, God loved you enough to provide the means of your salvation. And if you will wholly trust in him, believing not only that he can save you, but he will, then you are not condemned, but saved. Listen, not because you said the right words, not because you raised your hand or walked an aisle, but because you have wholly placed yourself in the merciful hands of a loving God. Have you done that? As we come to a close, please hear me this morning. If I have made nothing else clear, when I say, have you done that? I'm not talking about were you sincere when you said a prayer asking Jesus into your heart. Jesus can't live in a stony heart. The Bible says you need a new heart, right? You need God to take out your heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in there and that's inhabitable. And then you will be saved. Listen, I'm not asking if you really meant it when you rededicated your life for the 15th time at youth camp. Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. What I'm asking is since that moment, have you seen the spirit at work in your life? Are you radically different than you were before? That is what it means to be born again. It is to receive a new heart, a new life from God. And listen, no one stays the same after that. Do you hate sin? Do you desire the things of God? Are you obedient to his word? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves and each other. Not do you remember making a decision but have you seen the spirit at work in your life? Jesus says, where the wind blows, you see it. You don't know where it comes from, but it happens. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. There will be evidence of our new birth. Listen, it is only in that context that the beautiful promise and encouragement of John 3.16 comes alive. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. 